This broadcast, I get to speak to a very dear friend, Shelby Chestnut, who continues to inspire me in the way they uplift their communities and advocate for justice from and for the people. The work Shelby does is radical and game-changing. I am so inspired by their practice and really thrilled they took the time to sit down and chat with me for this interview. And to catch you all up, Shelby is the Director of Policy and Programs at the Transgender Law Center, TLC, the country's largest trans-led organization. Shelby's work focuses on supporting the leadership of transgender people of color around the U.S. to ensure they are alive and thriving. Prior to TLC, Shelby served as the Director of Community Organizing and Public Advocacy at the New York City Anti-Violence Project for six years. Shelby holds a BA from Antioch College and an MS in Public Policy from the New School. Shelby has dedicated their career to organizing and mobilizing LGBTQ people, people of color, and low-income communities to ensure policies are informed by the people directly impacted by economic inequality and violence. After our chat, I asked Shelby to share a music artist who they wanted to amplify from their community so we could play some tracks for you all. They gave space for Shia Diamond, Shia is a good friend of Shelby's and I am thrilled to learn about her music and share a selection of songs from you on this broadcast. I'll fill you in more on Shia's story after my chat with Shelby, but let's open our conversation with Shelby's fave track by Shia Diamond, I Am Her. If you had to wear my shoes, you'd probably take them off too.
thank you so much for being here, Shelby. Yeah, it's great to be here. Um, so my name is Shelby Chestnut. Um, I use they, them pronouns. My family's originally from Montana. My father's side is Assiniboine and my mom's side is Norwegian. And right now I'm in Minnesota. Mm. And career-wise, I work at a place called the Transgender Law Center. Uh, I'm their director of policy and programs. So I have an awesome day job. Right on. Okay, well, I'm just going to kind of dig in. And um, what inspires me most about your practice is that it's an example of how spaces can have the very, have the very communities that are directly impacted by the work as the policymakers, producers, directors, thinkers, and organizing. And it's kind of embarrassing to note the way nonprofits and other diverse or inclusive spaces are so often run by white or cis or wealthy people. People who are not directly affected by the work being developed and are there in positions of leadership and power as people who wanna help or resolve yeah. an issue. And this is not the case in the work you activate. Reading your bio, it states that um, you dedicate your career to organizing and mobilizing LGBTQ people, people of color and low income communities to ensure policies are informed by the people directly impacted by economic inequality and violence. And I just wanna say thank you. Thank you for saying that. Thank you for holding that space. And I'm really curious, how, how did you arrive at this work? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I think kind of just because I wanted to exist. Um, you know, I, I, I went to college at a super small college in Ohio. It's called Antioch College. And that was in the early thousands. I graduated and like a lot of people my age, I'm, I'm almost 40. Um, the economy was like tanking as I graduated college. And it brought me to Santa Fe, New Mexico. Um, and I worked for an arts organization there and ran their artist in residency program. And I, you know, I have done some art in the past. I'm by no means an artist, but I think having been raised in an artistic family, um, like this, I don't, I don't know what to say, like creative sort of reality and, and telling stories that need to be told like through different mediums sort of was throughout all of my life. Um, and I had a boss there that just really liked me um, and saw a lot of potential in me and really pushed me to go to grad school. Um, you know, and she's an older white woman originally from Philadelphia who ended up in Santa Fe, New Mexico for work and sort of one of those people that just stayed and never left. But she's not really the traditional person who would be pushing me as like a trans, queer, native person to go pursue a, a management career. Anyways, I applied to a number of schools um, for grad school in like 2007-ish, but I would only go to schools that didn't make me take standardized tests. So I ended up at the new school, which is a great school. Um, it's in New York City. I didn't love it, but partly because I was like older when I went to grad school and it was right as the recession was sort of ending. So everyone in grad school was like 22 and I was like almost 30. So it was like weird to have had like a working life and then quit my job and go to to school full-time anyways i think living there like i saw just the ways for me as like someone who's queer and trans i came out really young i was like 12 when i came out and that so that was like what 92 so it's not like an ideal time to be like queer person of color in this country uh, or maybe really anywhere um and I remember just feeling like, oh, the ways that these systems are all connected is because people that are actually impacted by oppressive systems don't get to make decisions um, about issues that impact their life. Um, and I had a great mentor advisor in grad school who now I want to say teaches at UC Davis, like the Imagine America or something. Her name's um, Erica Colarenas, and she's great. She um, came out of the sort of like community strategy driven, like base building. Her parents were like white um, social justice folks that did a lot of civil rights organizing in the sixties with black voters. I mean, she really carried that tradition on. So I did a lot of study with her that was sort of like, how do you 
like go from theory to practice. Um, and it's really just, I guess, as simple as like, unless the people that are impacted by the issues are like informing them, then you're not going to be making decisions in a good way. Um, and I was super fortunate to just sort of land some really amazing jobs over the years. You know, right now I'm at the Transgender Law Center, which is the country's largest trans-led organization in probably in the world. And so every day I get to go to work with other trans people and just do badass things, you know, and I think we're, we're seen as an, we are an impact litigation organization, but I think what's unique about us is that so much of our litigation is informed by people organizing and being like, what are the issues that are important to folks? So, you know, there's a lot of bad things happening across the country targeting trans youth, which is really devastating and dire, but I think a lot of people are approaching it like, well, we just need to change policy for this to not happen. And it's like, no, like we need to change culture for this to happen. And we need to approach litigation from like a human perspective. That's like, what are issues that trans people are criminalized for? So whether that's like HIV criminalization laws in states or whether that's, you know, the police profiling transgender people for just simply being trans walking down the street stuff like that. Like those are the sort of cases that we're focusing on. Um, and it's great. And, you know, I say all of this cause it's a lot of my background is in like anti-violence work. So even when I did stuff with this, um, Santa Fe art Institute in Santa Fe, we did a lot of violence prevention. Essentially it's, it was a lot of low income kids, a lot of kids who are growing up in violence, um, around them in their homes. And we were using art for them to sort of one, have something to do because they needed something to do and then sort of expressing themselves via art. So it was like, that was like indirectly anti-violence work. And then I worked for years at a place called the New York City Anti-Violence Project, which works with survivors of violence. So generally people call a hotline if they're experiencing sort of violence because they're LGBT, whether that's with a partner on the street, what, what have you. But like, I saw that violence was sort of the common thread that most communities I was part of we're constantly experiencing, whether that's at the hands of the state, the homes they grew up in, the schools they go to, that sort of thing. So that's sort of how I got into it, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, no, it's incredible. Like the 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 way that um, violence can really be dismissed within community spaces, you know, as like not not something to look into or something to push aside to do the work, you know, so I appreciate you talking about that as such an underlying important aspect of like litigation organizing and um, producing this type of work. And can you talk about the model at Transgender Law Center and the aspects of people-led advocacy in your practice in general? Like, how do you maintain this ethos in a sustainable way? And maybe what has worked and what has not, and I can imagine it's a continued evolution. Yeah. I mean, I think what works is that we're flexible. I mean, I think the, this last year has just sort of been something that everyone survived in their own ways. Um, and for us, we really quickly, um, you know, stopped travel. Travel was something we did often um, and moved more virtual, which, you know, to say there's like also people you're really going to miss engaging because of that. And the isolation, I think, is very real. Um, so I work in the team of people that does sort of what we would call like community organizing or movement building. And so we have various projects that we sort of focus work on. So we have like a disability project. We have a uh, Black Trans Circles, which is a project that's specifically for Black trans women and Black trans femmes. Um, we have our Positively Trans program, which is a program working specifically with trans people living with HIV. Um, so we have all this like intersectional work that like, you know, folks will sort of on one hand probably read as like, oh, that's one specific thing, but how we're approaching it is sort of integrating it across all areas. So um, I'm fortunate that I get to work with you know, mostly young of color, majority black trans organizers who are sort of building up political education. So we work with local communities. So like right now, I'll give you an example. There's all of these anti-trans bills around the country targeting trans young people, um, you know, and they're all across the country. I think there's over a hundred filed. And what we could do as an impact litigation org is, you know, only file a lawsuit 
um, against the states that do this and just have policy people sit at the tables, which even those folks for us are trans. But instead, what we've done is we've kind of worked behind the scenes to just reach out to local leaders that we know through our various on the in the in the community convenings that we've done over the years to be like, hey, we know this is happening in your state. What are you working on? What do you need help on? So sometimes it means like prepping people to speak to media. Sometimes it means like asking funders to give funding specifically to a grassroots group. I think in this day and age, social media is like the thing. So we have a pretty lit Instagram page. If anyone wants to check it out, it's Transgender Law Center. And just kind of giving voice to folks that oftentimes aren't included in the conversation is really how we approach our work. Um, you know, and it's a moment where like I'm, I'm in Minneapolis right now. And, you know, just two days ago, um, Dante Wright was killed by the Brooklyn Center Police. And to see the ways that that organizing and momentum is really informed by young queer and trans folks is pretty amazing. There's an organization or group here called the Black Visions Collective who, you know, are young, black and brown, queer and trans people sort of saying like, we are demanding the liberation of all black people. And that needs to happen through defunding the police, through like community interventions and like reimagining safety for all people, but specifically black people. Um, you know, and, and I like when I hear that, I'm like, that is like the most revolutionary, awesome idea I've ever heard. But having grown up here as like mixed race, native and white, who was queer, like most of the people I was exposed to that were queer and trans were white. So to see this like huge movement of people power built by black and brown queer and trans folks, I'm just like, hell yeah, like sign me up. So like I may get paid in my day job to do that. But like yesterday I went to the vigil and it was just, it was amazing to see this sort of intergenerational organizing that kind of centers everyone, but is is led by young Black leaders in this moment. So what are some of the most pressing issues or topics that we need to be paying attention to as, accomplice, yeah. as accomplices to trans people and um, trans people and people of color right now? Um, from your perspective, what it sucks to even have to ask you to do that labor to tell yeah. me to tell the people listening but because i have access to you as a friend somebody who i've known for <laughs> a long time a very long time i i feel comfortable asking you yeah. this in this space and i i just want to do a footnote that i wouldn't necessarily ask you this if i didn't feel comfortable like you could share this with me like what can we be doing as accomplices yeah i mean i think what really needs to be done is like conversations. Like, I know that that sounds like simple, but like chances are at this point, everyone knows a trans person. They may not even know it. Um, and, you know, it might mean having conversations with like your family and your friends who like just are sometimes shy away from the issues because they don't want to mess up. Um, they don't understand it necessarily. Um, I think, you know, as people of color like the issues that they're not separate like one's gender identity isn't separate from their racial identity and oftentimes connected to their economic instability like you know I'm thinking back to just like when we met for example it's like it was you know what, 15 year 12 it was a long time <laughs> at least, we were at least, I think most 15. folks were in their late 20s you know <laughs> like just sort of getting by semi-adulting but yeah. part of it was like people just looked out for community and it was truly mm -hmm. like, I think, multiracial, multigender, you know, queer, straight, trans. And part mm -hmm. of it was just like, I think, creating a welcoming environment where we're thinking about these issues. Um, you know, something I'm always kind of clocking is like, how are we lifting up issues that might not directly impact us, but are connected to our communities. So I think I've seen huge movement in just people talking about trans issues as, as cis people or as non-trans people. Um, and that's really important because um, part of it's like, I think we just need to normalize things and give joy. Um, we have a really cool project that TLC works with. It's called Truth, which is, it's a trans youth project. So. And they've done this amazing work where they like work with artists and have the youth tell stories to sort of lift up like what trans youth stories need to be shared and like lifting up stories of joy and hope and sort of like what they envision the world to be. Because I think oftentimes 
like we approach social issues with like such despair, like this is so bad. And I mean, I think to like sort of what's happening with the stop line three or what happened at Standing Rock, it's like, not only was it like a fight for people's lives, but it was like, let's celebrate the resilience that folks have. So I think finding some some common ground in in what our resilience and liberation is, is key, but then also just, you know, there's like quick Google searches. I know that's like cheesy, but like if people have questions, like ask questions. And I think also like if anyone lives in these states where there's anti-trans bills, like get involved, like look up the LGBT groups in your area to be like, okay, what do we need to do? Like call your legislators to be like, these are archaic laws targeting and harming young people, all young people, but specifically trans people, like they're not going to be tolerated. There's two right now in Montana that they're fighting, you know, and one of them would mean like a permanent ban on birth certificate changes, which is really detrimental to trans folks. And then another one um, has to do with youth sports, you know, and like, it's like, if I think back to being young, like sports was like the one thing that like, made me not want to kill myself because I could like use my body and breathe. Like people need to do better. Like if they're running out of options and attacking trans kids as their like main target, like get a life. Yeah. And I mean, that that brings me to something else that, that I've been really um, kind of thinking about is, um, is rural versus urban, you know, and as someone who has worked across the country with trans communities, how do how do the needs of trans communities shift from urban to rural? And um, how do we activate policy to shift within that complex lived experience for trans communities in different locations? Yeah. Um, because I know right now we are in a global network. Yeah. Um, we, we live in public in this way. And so we all want to jump on the bandwagon of the like the hot kind of like topic across the country. But like you said, there are small things that we can do within our communities. So so how do you navigate that um, urban versus rural for trans rights? Yeah, I mean, I think the first step is like always making sure that like we don't just have like these like major geographic regions represented. Like I love the Bay Area and I love New York City, but there's, you know, there's a whole swath of people between the two. So I think making sure that those voices are included. And I think part of it is like also just hearing what the differences are. We work really closely with a coalition of folks and they're from all over the country. And one of the members, um, her name is Maddie Jim. You might know her. She lives in Albuquerque. She works for one of the Indian health clinics down in Albuquerque. She's a Dene Navajo trans woman. And it's been amazing to hear sort of what she's done with like Indian health services and on the different sort of reservation hospitals to be like, not only are you like the only hospital within a hundred miles for most people, but like you're the only access to transition related care for trans people. So like you have to do this, like you have to do better. And she's worked tirelessly to get like Indian health services, which is like a super bureaucratic system to like be inclusive of trans people in New Mexico, you know, which is a very complicated political state. And she's really quick to rep, like you have to factor in that like rural folks access looks so different to just healthcare than like anywhere else. Like you can't just like get in the car and be at the ER in five minutes. Like, you know, we saw what happened with COVID on the Navajo reservation. It's like, there's a reason it got so out of control. Like there's just really lack of, of resources as a whole. But then I think also talking about like the economic disparities that are so different depending on where you live, you know, like poverty in a rural area versus poverty in a city look oftentimes very different, you know, certainly similarities, but like some people can't access employment. Like that's just not an option for where they live for a variety of reasons. And like having spent, you know, decades of your life in, in extreme poverty, your reliance on systems that have harmed you is really debilitating. So I think talking about ways that we can change you know, essentially state-based systems that are inherently harmful, but to better serve trans people as a, as a stopgap, I think is one area that really needs to be focused on. And the healthcare thing is like major, like the reality of it is everyone needs healthcare and everyone has different access to it. I think really depending on where you live and your economic reality. So those are things I think to think about, um, 
there's a group that's called the Trans Justice Funding Project, and they're kind of based all over. Um, they started, uh, I want to say six, seven years ago. But what's cool about them is it's like a philanthropic group. So each year they give millions of dollars to trans-led organizers around the country. And they convene a panel of trans fellows to decide where the money goes. And they made it so it's not just nonprofits that can apply. So like, you know, you can have like two of your friends who are working on some sort of issue, say in Montana, and you can apply for funds and you can get those funds if the advisory committee decides that they like your application. And their application's like super easy to do, you know, like it's like most of these funding applications are quite complicated and you have to be a nonprofit and submit all these financials. Like, no, it's like a proposal, people review it and then you get notified and they send you the money. And there's no reporting requirements because like what might be needed in Montana or North Dakota looks very different than what might be needed, I don't know, in Seattle, Washington for trans people. So I think models like that, which allow people to sort of self-direct the resources, are pretty amazing and we should have more of those. Yeah, it feels like a, a big part of your work is like that self-directed kind of like um, leadership yeah. um, and providing platforms and space for that. And um, you've been with TLC for some time. Um, is there is there a place that you hope to jump into next? Do you, what are you dreaming of? Where, where is Shelby? going in the next 10 years? I mean, I think I, I love my job. Like I, I feel like rarely when people work in nonprofits, do they wake up, you know, I've been there almost four years and be like, wow, I still love my job, but I do like, and I think every day <laughs> mm. is kind of like a new adventure for, for the work. Um, yeah. I think people are tired from Trump and COVID. And I think it has, it's going to leave lasting impacts that we're unaware of for some time. But I also think we have a moment right now where we have a little bit of sort of coverage with like a, an administration that doesn't totally want to kill most people to really push the boundaries, you know, like what does it look like to think about like the carceral state and like defunding police in local areas and shifting resources to sort of, you know, a variety of community issues that need funding right now. I think some work that I really am super interested in right now that um, I'm hungry to do with some folks is looking at sort of the violence that black trans women and black trans femmes are facing and thinking about like community-based solutions to that violence. Because the thing that often doesn't get talked about is how a lot of violence is, is caused by people within your immediate community. So it's like within communities of color, there's violence playing out that is you know, really deadly. And the same people causing harm are harmed by other systems. So how do we think about bigger interventions that actually get at like the root of violence versus just like stop killing trans people and the stopgap solution is like, let's pass hate crimes laws, which like do very little to actually stop violence or protect people. But what does it look like? Uh, I think a lot about, uh, there's a woman here who's a, a pretty well-known writer. Her name is Marcy Rendon and she's a dear friend of mine. And She's done a lot of work with um, Native communities and sexual abuse. And it's intense because um, there is, you know, this like long history of, of rape and sexual abuse in Native communities. Um, and then you go to the generations that are usually like my mother or my grandparents' age with forced boarding school and like what happened to people. And then they come back to their communities often. And, you know, these cycles of sexual violence don't stop. But I remember her years ago telling me this story about work she was doing maybe with a reserve up in Canada. And all of these men had been sexually abused by like their mothers or grandmothers who'd gone to boarding school, but none of them would say anything because it was such a matriarchal society. But like, how do you have those conversations? That's like, I didn't actually mean to harm you. Like I was so hurt and harmed myself that I started to harm people I loved. But like, how do you have that community accountability? when the state is so inclined to just like, you did something wrong, I'm going to persecute you. But like, what's underneath there? So I think a lot about like how we could apply some of those models to like trans issues right now. 
because it's just a lot of shame and a lot of violence and a lot of cycles of violence that are getting people to this point where violence and death is the sad reality for far too many people. That was a very long-winded thing, but it's something I think about a lot. No, and I think it's really important to think about things in like that holistic way or like that long-term way. We always talk about um, seven generations, you know, as like an ethos for indigenous-led activation and, um, it's very much the harm that is happening within our own communities is rooted in harm that was maybe perpetuated from outside sources, you know, and taught to us as like a normalized way. So yeah. how do we normalize other yeah. ways? <laughs> and so I really appreciate you thinking about that and activating those spaces more with your work and i'm excited i'm excited to support that and be here for it so thank you for sharing that um so i want to know um who in your community or in popular culture is inspiring you right now and in what ways what work do we need to be paying attention to better i mean minnesota is like lit it gets a lot of rep as like the white lutheran capital of the world and in many ways it is but what people are doing here to sort of demand a different world and justice for you know communities of color specifically black communities is pretty unprecedented um you know it's snowing here today and it's 30 degrees and people have been out for two days like protesting and sort of demanding a different world um, than one that's filled with police that kill people, um, specifically young black men. So that gives me a lot of hope, just seeing the sort of inter-community solidarity that's existing here. And I think especially like a call to sort of white people to like do better. You can't just sort of be like, oh, I'm anti-racist, but like I don't actually like stand for black people's liberation. That gives me hope. I think the ways that trans people too have just survived in this COVID moment, like immediately, like we did a call, like as soon as COVID hit around mutual aid and like every trans person I know that runs an org was doing some sort of community driven mutual aid to be like, we need to get people clothes. We need to get people food. We need to keep people masks. Like, do they need housing? And I think most of society as a whole, who's pretty individualistic was sort of like, okay, like we're in this together. You know, I spent most of it in my apartment building in New York, which is a really mixed building, older people, younger people, a lot of Caribbean folks, a lot of white people, some people of color gentrifiers. And like to see the camaraderie that existed, I was like, okay, this is like, a, this is a country I would not mind staying in and living in. Um, I, I hope that just even if, you know, COVID comes to a close and hopefully it does, that we still have that sort of vision for a world where we look out for each other. Cause that was very much how I was raised. Like, oh, I'm going to the store. Do you need anything? Cause you can't leave the house. Um, in terms of pop culture, I mean, I'm like obsessed with Bad Bunny because he's like such a weirdo. Um, I mean, he's hot as hell one, but he's also just like, you know, comes from a really like machismo culture and is totally like effeminate in a lot of his presentation and mannerisms and kind of doesn't seem to get fucked with too much. Um, and is just out here like waving the freak, freak flag around things. Um, I did not get the little Nas X Nikes that dropped. I was like, you know, really hoping that I would get the Chick-fil-A Satan Nikes, but I did not. <laughs> I mean, to see things like that though in mainstream yeah. culture that are like so queer and trans influenced and by yeah. some queer and trans people like that is like pretty spectacular. Um, mm -hmm. and I think, yeah. I think, you know, there's just like young people are forcing us all to have a little bit of a gender reckoning. Like, what is this like binary construct we've created? I mean, you have two young kids. It's like kids figure themselves out a lot faster than adults are figuring them out. So maybe we should just listen to them. Yes, I so, agree. Yeah. I think they are somebody to look to, yeah, like, <laughs> to be paying attention to. <laughs> Oh, I agree. Um, um, I want to talk a little bit about healing from trauma. You know, um, I just listened to this podcast on the Laverne Cox show, uh, actually okay. this morning, as I was thinking about how to, um, how to kind of form some yeah. of these questions. And 
um, it really resonated with me and just like where I come from and so many of my communities that I support and love and healing from trauma on various levels is something many of us or our younger community members are um, navigating and all generations, obviously. And in your work, you, you create spaces to work through trauma for the trans community. Is there any mindfulness practice that you yourself have that perhaps you can share with us here um, or that you know your community at TLC accesses as a way to move through trauma and feel empowered? I know self-care is loaded <laughs> as a term these days, <laughs> but it doesn't discredit the fact yeah. that we need to continue to build our toolkits yeah. for health and well-being within our daily practices. So can you speak about what you may do to stay up in energy and move through trauma as an individual and within your community? Well, that's a good question. Um, well, I think for me, I've, you know, uh, as somebody who like pretty young in my life was just sort of taught like work hard and you'll benefit from it sort of thing like go to work early and stay late and capitalism yay 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 it's taken a lot of undoing and i think for me it's like i i mean i'll be honest i've had like nervous breakdowns in like the last decade related to just like work and not really taking care of myself the one that was like probably most like impactful and longest lasting was right after the Pulse nightclub shooting. You know, I was, I, I did like 75 yeah. press interviews in like two days, like was so focused on getting everything out to everyone else that I like didn't take five minutes to be like, what the hell just happened? And months later, it just sort of like came out and I was like, oh, this is not good. Um, You know, we're really lucky at TLC that I think we have out of some challenges created sort of a situation and specific staffing dedicated to sort of like people and culture and like sustaining the organization. And we do work with um, this amazing sort of healing justice practitioner, Erica Woodland, who runs the National Queer Trans Therapist Network of Color and comes in, you know, to various meetings that we have in team formations to do sort of like sustainability planning. And like naming that that might look different right now, you know, like I spent a month this last year in COVID eating French toast for dinner every day. And I was like, you know, if this is like what I need to do to like get through the day, so be yes, it. Do it. Um, you know, but like here I am like 40 and like just being like, oh, I need to actually like take care of my body. Like I can't just like not sleep, eat like trash and expect to feel good. Um, so that's like what I've personally been working on. Um, I'll try and go for walks a lot because that's kind of all I can do. I'm out in the burbs. So um, walking, you know, I, I'm like caring for my mother. So like I cook every meal for her. But so it's like cooking food is actually an interesting way to be like, oh, you have to nourish the body and like take care of it. Work-wise, I think, um, I think just naming that like people are not going to be with it right now, like for a myriad of reasons. And that's okay. Like for years, I was really attached to like, you have to be on time. You have to be like present and you have to do this and you have to do that. And you can't say no to anything. And it's kind of like, for what ends? Like, so I can die sooner. Like that doesn't, I, the one thing I do every day, this is like, so maybe this isn't self-care, but I do every day is I listen to the daily, the New York times daily podcast as like a one way to get like news that's like current. And um, I kind of can't stand the host's voice, but also love it at the same time. But it's like this routine I have and do it just daily. Um, That's amazing. I haven't listened because... to the podcast yet. So I'm actually yeah. super excited because she's a dear friend of mine. I love her. Also, her voice is like one of the most soothing things I've ever encountered. I'm just like, Laverne Cox. All day. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I know. Well, I was just talking to my friend um, earlier and they were like, You haven't heard Laverne Cox? show podcast yeah. yet and so i just immediately was like i need that yeah. voice in my ears <laughs> and yeah, you know she's a dear friend of mine. So you she's, all, i met oh. her years ago when she was on orange is the new black and i mean talk about a woman that i think mm. has like just like put out what what is so possible in the world like you know she's a very skilled actress like super brilliant activist 
incredibly beautiful. And like, she's still to this day, I mean, she's like doing calls right now around these state legislatures. Like she, she knows the lane she needs to be in and is pushing with her visibility to sort of call it out. So I just, I, I get so happy when I see her continued success and just like brilliance in the world. And her Instagram is awesome. If you haven't checked it out, she does a lot of, she's a, she did dancing as a, as a college student and has continued for her career, but she does a lot of the dance videos on her Instagram and she like really gets into it. It's cool. I'll have to check that out for sure. I, I haven't gone and in, dipped into the Instagram yet, but I definitely will. And it's interesting, like that feels like somebody in pop culture to continue paying attention to. I feel like Laverne is so important for all of us yeah. um, to be paying attention to. And this all kind of brings me into like the final wrap up moment of our nice juicy conversation. And I want to know, well, you, you mentioned the, the Daily from New yeah. York. Um, what are three pieces of media that you are taking in right now and that you can share as resource and inspiration to those listening? So podcasts, books, blogs, music albums, like what is floating your boat right now, Shelby? Three things. Three things. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what I did get in the mail today. Which yes. is I got the new Brandy Carlisle memoir. She's a singer songwriter. Oh my God. I'm excited to read it. I really love her music. I think she's like a you know, she's like a white, queer, kind of country, folksy. She's an incredible musician, though. I learned, about, I mean, I've listened to her music for years. Mm -hmm. um, I actually saw her in playing Santa Fe at like one of the breweries like a bajillion years ago. And she's now like a Grammy nominated winning wow. artist. But I like it because she sings songs about like heartache. And, you know, the memoir talks a lot about her life, which she grew up like poor, white, um, evangelical or Southern Baptist in Washington and is gay, lots of alcohol, like families, you know, like the whole gamut, you name it. To be honest, I like sometimes avoid the news just now because it's like so terrible. Um, I like to follow specific things on like Instagram. So like I follow a lot of hashtags that like bring me joy. There's one hashtag that like if I, there's two things I look at if I get sad. There's the boys with braids. So it's mostly native boys with braids, which I love. And then um, like the kitten memes, like there's one called the daily kitten. Oh like God, I have bats, I love, I love them. Shit. Most people are allergic to them and can't stand them, but I find <laughs> them so calming. What else? I mean, there's also just like, I watch a lot of TV. There's been incredible TV in the last couple of years. So I watched the Tina Turner documentary. Um, with I my loved mom. that. It was Holy shit. I mean, yeah. talk about a what comeback a lady. Mama. Like this lady just Ooh. fought her way into the fucking liberation she deserved. I love that. Yes. And I remember my mom got divorced in the 80s from my dad. So like what's love got to do with it? Like that was like a real anthem such a good yeah. like telling of that story that doc is so i'm good. currently watching the center which i'm slowly getting through because it's pretty intense i don't even know what what it was like a usa or like some sort of show that's now on netflix oh it's really intense dang i don't know if um, i'm ready for that <laughs> lots of violence crime tv's kind of been like the one thing that i can take in a lot of yeah. Well, I think that's why I love asking this question right yeah. now, because we're all at home so much more and we're all consuming. So I'm like, what are you yeah. consuming? Kitten memes, <laughs> um, documentaries. Yes. I would say the show I loved the most in the last year that I watched that I was sort of sleeping on. Well, two. I finally watched all of Breaking Bad. Love that show. Now that oh, I don't okay. live in New Mexico, I can watch it. And then um, <laughs> Ozark with which is a really well done show that I like a lot. Definitely. I'm definitely going to have to binge Breaking Bad again. I don't know if I ever finished it. I started watching it like seven years ago and I was like, this is too close to home. Yeah, you're like, I literally <laughs> live here where they're filming. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, TV's kind of been my sanctuary when the news, mm -hmm. it's, just, it's just a lot. Yeah, it is a lot. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to share all of this with us. And is there any advice that you can give to like young queer people, young trans people, young yeah. non-binary, just anybody who's like kind of sorting through like carving out their space and like breaking down the norms? I would say just live your whole life, you know, like I, I, I came out really young, but like I also realized that I conformed to these ideas that were pretty harmful to just my own self perception of myself for a long time. 
-hmm. Like if you don't see something, that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Just make it, you know? And there's, I mean, there's so many beautiful Ooh. like things out in the world that you can feel seen and cherished by. Yeah, like it took me a long time to be like, oh, you can be native, you can be queer and you can be trans and they all exist at the same time. Hell so, yeah. Power to the people. <laughs> I mean, I, like part of me is like, I can't stand Minnesota because I grew up here, but I'm also like, what an amazing place to be. Like I was telling you in text, like this eagle, this like bald eagle flew over the vigil I was at last night. And I was like, this is very telling of what is needed right now. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I think it is. It's, there's like a, there's like a returning home kind of vibe that's yeah. happening and whatever that means yeah, right? i think like literally and spiritually you know mm -hmm. yeah so that's my advice Definitely. just like just make it if you don't see it like truly it, it needs to be there as far as i'm concerned that's beautiful i love that sentiment i love I love that because oftentimes we're we're caught in like this really capitalist like comparison mode of operandi, yeah. you know, just like, oh, I can never be that. So I can never yeah. be. And that's not the case. And that's what I love about that. Yeah. What you're saying. It's not there yet because you haven't like carved yeah. that space out. Yeah, no, it's true. Yeah. Well, no, thanks, thank Shelby. You. Say hi to everyone. don't like antiques, I want something new The world don't like no freaks coming in their rooms But this beggar's got a right to choose I'm not a stranger, I'm just like you I need love, I don't need money After all these years, baby, I'm still running Who's gonna say my want is not a need? That gets so dirty after all these years, baby. It's still hurting. Who's gonna say my won't is not a need? Just want my piece of the American pie. Got your slice, where is mine? Put my fingers on this thing called life. Just a piece of the I want something new I got my dignity Gonna live my truth Like the southern smile I just can't lose Let my life sweep across the room You may laugh but it's not funny That's the thing that keeps me coming Who's gonna say my woe is not a need Let's me know that they're still learning Who's gonna say my want is not a need Just want my piece of the American pie You got your slice, where is mine? Pick my fingers on this thing called life Just a piece of the American pie Break the chain
And now, as promised, a little more on Shia Diamond, a dear friend of Shelby's and a musician you are going to want to stay up on. Shia Diamond is a singer and songwriter who makes soul-rooted music of resistance and liberation. Based in New York City, she was born in Little Rock, Arkansas, and spent portions of her upbringing in Memphis, Tennessee, and Flint, Michigan. Repressed and marginalized throughout her childhood for not accepting her gender role, she ran away at the age of 14 and entered foster care. Upon her emancipation, she lacked the means to pay for gender reassignment surgery, committed armed robbery, and spent roughly a decade in prison. While incarcerated, she developed her powerful singing style and forthright approach to songwriting. Shia was released from prison in 2009, relocated to New York, and continued to work on music and become deeply involved in the transgender rights movement. It was Shia's a cappella performance of I Am Her, which we heard a version of to open this broadcast, at a Black Trans Lives Matter event that caught the attention of Justin Tranter, a songwriter who's worked with artists like Selena Gomez, Justin Bieber, and Gwen Stefani. With Tranter as her producer, Diamond is focused on lending her voice to those who have none. And Shelby wants you all to pay close attention to their dear friend, Miss Shia Diamond. Living as a black trans woman, a product of abandonment of the foster care system, the prison system, being black, fat, not being wanted by anybody. I thought I was going to die in prison. I thought I was going to die in the streets after I, I, I was put out of my house at 14 years old and told, get that sin out of my house. Yeah, each time I thought I was going to die, each time, each time I wanted to die. Giving up was the easiest thing to do, but fighting was the hardest thing to do, and I'm always ready for a challenge. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
got snatched up by my mom when I was six. I can still smell the smoke as the bullet mist. That's a lot for a kid. Had enough when I was 14. I ran away so I can foster my dreams. But I didn't have the knowledge, the streets was too much. Mama just taught me I wasn't enough. You save, so you live it up. Hard days, you never seen them love. I'm not saying I'm the only one. But damn, some days only feel like. Cried so much when I was released Kissed the grass up under my feet Modern slavery tried to get the best of me There's a lot for anybody as a child, it saved me through the foster care system, it saved me through prison. I was writing hundreds of songs, hundreds of songs in, in there. My experiences are the reason why my EP is called Seen It All. If I had given up and taken my life like I wanted to do, I wouldn't have been here to say I thought I'd seen it all. I want to be a representation of what I didn't have to look forward to. I want to be a hope for somebody who feels hopeless, who feels like I have nothing to live for. I want to be that person that you can see trans people can be successful. I'm not making music just because it sounds good. I'm trying to give the kids something to dance to. I'm making music because that's the only way you're gonna hear me. I have to entertain you. So in my entertainment, I'm gonna keep on putting these messages in it. Some of you will read through it. Some of you will listen to it once or twice and be like, oh, it's cute. But some of you are conscious as hell. You're gonna be like, oh, she slayed. I know exactly what she's talking about. I go through it every day. I'm snatching edges. If you haven't figured that out yet, 